Let us pray. O God, you are the one who makes a way where there is no way through the wilderness, through the deserts of our lives. We open ourselves this morning to receive your new thing for us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Five of us here at Laurelville, or five of us here at East Chestnut, <laughs> uh, are just back from Laurelville, where we were at a worship and music leaders retreat last weekend. And uh, I have to say that in all my years of hearing singing, I have never heard singing like we heard at Laurelville. Uh, 180 gifted singers and musicians all lifting their hearts in praise to God. It was something very, very special. But I have to admit that being there with all these gifted musical people was incredibly intimidating for me. Because you see, I can't read music. And uh, I have this strange propensity of whenever there's a good singer singing a part next to me, I shift over and slide over into their part. I don't know, maybe a musical person could explain this, but that's who I am. Maybe you've noticed that I have that propensity. Now, this is a pretty embarrassing and uh, maybe even heretical thing for a Mennonite pastor to confess, and I hope you're not going to be demanding my letter of resignation (laughs) here this afternoon. But here's the thing, folks. I actually love four-part singing. (laughs) Amen. Thank you, Don. I love hearing the sopranos carry the melody, the altos descend, the tenors soar, and the basses rumble. Anybody else like that? You know, coming home from China once, where all church singing was in unison, the first time I stepped into our home congregation and we went into four-part harmony, I I just felt the tears streaming down my face. It was so beautiful. And more recently, I've begun to realize that I also treasure four-part singing because it reminds me how much I need all of you to do something that I don't have the gifts for. I also love four-part singing because I believe it shows us how Christians in our great diversity can sing together with a unity that brings glory to God. You're singing your bass part, I'm singing my tenor part, you're singing soprano, 
We never turn to each other and say, how come you're not singing the bass part? We're singing with a beautiful unity in our diversity. And when we look out at creation, we can't help but notice that our God absolutely delights in differentness. You ever thought about that? You know, God could have chosen just to make crows and send them all to Lancaster. (laughs) Amen? Maybe God did. Well, if God had only made crows, we'd all be crow watchers instead of bird watchers, right? But instead, God has also created black-capped chickadees and ruby-throated hummingbirds and ivory-billed woodpeckers and yellow-rumped warblers, right? God could have led the early church to write just one gospel. But no, we got four of them instead. And as with four-part harmony, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each help us to hear the full beauty and splendor of Jesus' song. John couldn't have done that alone. Luke couldn't have either. We needed all four. And in this new church year, all of our gospel readings, if you may have not have noticed yet, are coming from Luke. Right. And it's especially because of Luke and who he was and what kind of life that he had lived, what kind of ministry he had experienced that we know in a special way about some special things about Jesus that the others don't tell us quite as much about. And in particular, because of Luke, we know about Jesus' special concern for the vulnerable. Because of Luke, we know about the crucial role of women in his ministry. Great stories about his benefactors who were women. And because of Luke, and this is dear to my heart, we know that Jesus went away regularly to commune with God in prayer. If we didn't have Luke, we wouldn't know that. So in Luke 3 today, we all find ourselves standing on the banks of the Jordan, witnessing the baptisms of Jesus and the crowds who were gathered there. I love to imagine the sunlight bouncing off of the moving water and sprinkling and dappling in our faces. And as we stand here on the, mat, on the banks, we have to ask, who is performing all these baptisms? Well, in Luke, it's not exactly clear, is it? If you read that passage, it seems very much like John the Baptist is in prison. Did you notice that? So we can be very grateful to Matthew and Mark for filling in parts of the picture that Luke may have missed. 
But they, Matthew and Mark, also miss something crucial that Luke does not. In their Gospels, it is as Jesus comes up from his baptism in the waters that he suddenly hears the voice of God. But Luke, you'll remember, is always noticing Jesus' intimate prayer relationship with God. And so today, in verse 21, he tells us that it is while Jesus is praying. Was he in the flowing water praying? Was he on the banks praying? We don't know. But it's while he is praying to God that he hears God say to him, You are my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Dear friends, standing here as we are on the banks of the Jordan, we are witnessing a scene of exquisite communion unfolding within the Trinity of God. The Abba blesses and affirms The Spirit descends and the Son prayerfully receives. And the good news, as I love to share again and again, is that we are not meant to just stand there on the banks of the Jordan as mere observers of this divine communion. We are invited to jump in and to participate in this divine communion ourselves. For as Jesus later tells us in John 17, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may my followers also be in us. You see, our Lord Jesus comes to fully share our human lives so that we might fully share in the life of God and the communion of God. And what I believe this means is that we too, we too, are invited to hear God's awesome words of assurance that we too are God's beloved children. And we too belong in God's family. You are God's beloved child. Parents and grandparents What if we were to whisper these words into the ears of our children every night? You are God's beloved child. If you have a newborn, you can start doing that right away. Friends and mentors and spouses, what if you were to communicate this every day to your loved ones? You are God's beloved child. And all of us, especially when we're relating to that pain in the you-know-where person, 
What if we were to pray this quietly? You are God's beloved child. Because they really are. As we've done before, I'd like to invite us to stand now. Turn to those around us and share with them this good news. You are God's beloved child. You are God's beloved child, brother. And you are God's beloved child. Thank you. <laughs> Jeannie. God's your... beloved child. Amen. Am I one of those pains in the you-know-what? Ah, no, no, no. <laughs> you are God's beloved child. Even though I have cold hands. <laughs> you are also God's beloved child. Thank you, brother. Thank you. You are God's beloved child, Myrna. You are God's beloved child. So are you, Sue. Hey, brother. God's beloved child. Amen. You are too. So I'm wondering, do you think it's just a coincidence that Jesus is praying? Is it just a coincidence that he's praying when he hears these words from God today? I really think Luke believes and wants us to know that Jesus' whole ministry is launched from a posture of receptive prayer of being wide open to God after his baptism, fully seeking the mind of God for his life and his ministry. Back in Advent, didn't we see this same receptivity in Jesus' mother, Mary, in her awesome yes to God when she said, let it be with me according to your word. And our Anabaptist forebears had a word for this, a German word. They called it Glossenheit. A radical surrender to the beautiful purposes of God. This reminds me of a a story I heard this past October when the Smooker clan gathered in Dottie's home to mark the first year anniversary of Marcus's Return home to God. That evening I sat near uh, their daughter, Deb, who was a high school friend and buddy from from high school. And uh, she shared, we were all telling Marcus stories, (laughs) and there's some good ones. And uh, she shared how Marcus, over the years, Uh, would have regular problems with his computer. And he would call her in a uh, semi-panic and say the most hilarious things. Like like one time he called her and said, my Google has disappeared. (laughs) Don't you hate when your Google disappears? (laughs) Now, at first, control yourselves. Now, at first, 
he would ask Deb over the phone to walk him through step by step, you know, what to do on the computer. But that doesn't really work very well, does it? And because she was such a computer whiz, he finally just gave her his password. And she got some app so that she could remotely connect with his computer and make all the changes that were necessary. Isn't prayer what happens when we give God our password? And our full consent to make all the changes that are necessary, even the ones we don't know about, but perhaps we need most of all. When we completely open ourselves to God like Jesus did in the garden, and we say, not my will, but your will be done. Now, God is so incredibly loving that this kind of transformation will never, never be forced on us because a love that is forced is no longer love. Right? But friends, the opposite is true as well. a life in which God's transformation is prayerfully welcomed is is a life where God can do some amazing things. And a congregation where God's transformation is welcomed is also a congregation where God can do amazingly new things. So how can we ever trust, I think we all struggle with this, that the amazing words that God speaks to Jesus today, you are my beloved child, are also meant for us. How can we dare to believe that? And this is where the First Testament is very helpful, because With the Jewish people, we see God's long precedent of fierce and tender love, chesed love for the people of Israel. As we hear in Isaiah today, though they've wandered away, made a mess of everything, turned away, and are now in exile in Babylon, God's love for them still burns strong. Have you heard any more intimate words in all the scripture than we heard this morning? I've created and formed you, O Israel. I've called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't overwhelm you. When you pass through the fire, it will not consume you. I love you. 
and I am with you. And then later in this chapter, in Isaiah 43, we learn that whether 2,500 years ago or today, our God is always doing a new and unexpected thing. Now it springs forth. Do we not perceive it? Friends, what might God's new thing for East Chestnut be in 2016? In the midst of the incredible polarization in our nation right now, incredible polarization. And in the midst of the polarization right now in our Mennonite family, what if God's new thing is our congregation hanging in there with each other? What if in the midst of our diversity, it's allowing our differences to help us become more faithful and to discover more about Jesus' gospel together and to practice a deep, deep grace with each other when we fail. And we will. And I surely will. And need your grace. In fact, what if, the most, what if our most radical witness to the world around us is not that we agree on everything? Because we never will. But what if our most radical witness, the new thing from God, is how we continue to love each other, especially when we disagree with each other. Could there be anything more new and unexpected in our world than just that? At the Laurelville Retreat, our speaker challenged us to live our lives with the end of history in mind. Well, what's that? (laughs) And he said, live with Revelation 7 always in view. And what is in Revelation 7? That great multitude from every nation and tribe and race and language and every personhood falling on their faces before the throne and the Lamb in rapturous worship and doxology. As Martin Luther King, whose birthday we'll be celebrating tomorrow, put it, the end of history is reconciliation. The end of history is God's redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. There's that word again. The end is the creation of the beloved community. And dear friends, if we're all going to be spending eternity together, 
which I believe we will, then shouldn't we be rolling up our sleeves to do everything we can do now to become that beloved community together? Next Sunday, we're going to have the chance to glimpse that revelation vision when we all come streaming here forward to the table of our Lord. How might that vision, that Revelation 7 vision, change the way we live and work and pray in the week to come? Amen.